So there's a lot of things that could be said about Isaiah and the various prophecies in Isaiah, but certainly one thread throughout the whole book is a sense of longing. And then that longing kind of comes to a point in what we read uh, just now that Alan read to us and Luke, symbolized especially in Simeon and in Anna. And then, of course, in Paul, we read this morning in Galatians, but throughout Paul's letters, you find him making sense of, taking those threads of longing and fulfillment and showing how they all come together in Christ. So if we were to stop this morning and kind of based on that thought, ask ourselves to what is the Advent story in our Christmas readings this morning pointing? What is the new thing that Isaiah continually mentioned? What's this new thing that God is doing in Christ? What will characterize it? What are the marks of being in on it? And just for the sake of brevity this morning, I want to say that perhaps it can be summarized by two words in Isaiah 61.10, if you look at your passage there. And these words are salvation and righteousness. Now, obviously, those are really big, loaded religious words and maybe even a little scary, I mean, to try to understand what they mean. And especially in our day today, when salvation is a term that's used by a part of the church most frequently that is becoming increasingly in the culture in disrepute. Salvation is often thought today to be on the lips of many people, a kind of meanness, a kind of privilege that says, we know who's in and who's out. We know who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And so salvation is often seen as a word that this few sort of privileged people have and everybody else doesn't have it and they're not really in on it. It's thought often you know, to be a judgmental word and, and belong, to put it in, you know, most contemporary terms, it's, it's a word that people think is often found on the, on the lips of haters, right? You know that word, haters, haters got to hate, why you got to hate, right? It's this whole modern way of thinking about things. And then righteousness, I mean, that can just seem like such a total buzzkill, right? <laughs> just this horrible restraint on the human spirit. And I, of course, want to suggest something opposite, that these words like salvation and righteousness are actually seeds, they're like a seed that contains all that a plant will be, that they've got like a DNA in them that really does help us summarize this story. So let's think first about salvation. If you use the word salvation, it implies a savior, and that's enormously important. That there is no salvation apart from a person, this deeply personal God, who powerfully and graciously acts. And the reason that that's important is so that we don't limit salvation to just one component of what it is, but if we think of a person, we can think in more holistic terms and see that salvation is something like this. It's the comprehensive provision of God. So did you catch that? The comprehensive provision of God for the whole of desperate, sinful human condition. So that if you just, you know, get out some Greek dictionaries and, you know, get out some Hebrew dictionaries and just try to follow this thread along in the various contexts in which various biblical writers use this term and the, the kind of nuances that they put upon it, you'll find out that there is in salvation everything we need. There is deliverance from places where human beings are bound. There's a sense of return for those who feel far from God. There's a sense of safety for those who feel insecure in their lives. There's a sense of freedom, again, for those who feel bound. It has in mind general welfare, a sense of security, of prosperity, of healing for those who feel broken. 
a sense of rescue. And there again, you have that sense of humanity being trapped and the core to so much of what we think of as sinful human behavior, whether it's simple things like anger within a marriage or brutality between children and parents or the kinds of things that happen in corporate culture or political culture, that so many of these things, they come back to a human being feeling trapped. They're not experiencing salvation, rescue, freedom, deliverance, wholeness. So they, they, are, they find themselves in a hallway and they're a middle manager and their boss says, I need your report to say X. But the middle manager knows that the numbers are really Y. But the upper management says, you know, I got a report to the board meeting next week and I need you to make those numbers say X, even when they really say Y. And that human being in that moment feels trapped. Now I could just go on for hours illustrating how so much of what we think of as sinful behavior is rooted in, the, in human beings feeling trapped, insecure, unsafe. And so that and all kinds of things that would cohere to it is what God means when he says, or what the Bible means when it says that God, our Savior, has rescued us. This is what salvation means. It means a kind of transformation that comes to us and it frees us from both the penalty and the power of sin. And so this is what Jesus, we didn't read the passage this morning, but this is what Jesus precisely takes upon himself as he stands up one day in synagogue, takes the reading for the day, a reading in Isaiah. Remember the story, he reads it, he sits down. None of that was scandalous, that was totally normal. We just experienced it. So if somebody stand up, read the appointed reading and sit down, that's, that's total normal. But no one in the Eight or eight years we've been together now, not one of you have ever sat down after reading something and said, this reading is now fulfilled in me. That made it different. When Jesus sat down and said, this is what is happening in me, humanity is going to find freedom and deliverance and recovery. It'll all be in me. And this is what Paul's getting at in Galatians when, you know, he tries to answer the question, why was that baby born in Bethlehem? And Paul says precisely, God sent his son born of a woman among us, so that. It's one of the great things about trying to understand Paul is that he's got these logical connectives, these so that's, these therefores, and it helps us get into his head and heart. And so he says he, that God gave his son to redeem those who had been, in a sense, kidnapped by the law. We would say today maybe something like hijacked by religion. And, and a kind of use of the law that abstracted it from its overall story so that the law stopped being God's coaching, Torah quit being God's guidance, his mentoring, his shaping of a people, and they took it and began to use it for their own purposes and therefore with detached from its real and original purpose and now attached to other more human purposes, it was actually like kidnapping people. So that religion was actually making them into worse sorts of human beings. And Paul's saying that, that no, God is redeeming us from that by this person who was born under the law. And what he's doing is he's redeeming us, Paul says. Now that word means something like just to buy back. Like you've slowly but surely had sort of mission drift or heart drift. And in God is redeeming you. He's buying you back. He's reclaiming you for himself. Um, sometimes the word redeem means to buy away from. So maybe uh, like we might think of today of various forms of human trafficking, where someone's being trafficked and we sort of, we buy them away from that. We redeem them. 
We, we not, not literally, but we sort of pay something to get them back. Well, get back from what? And here again is, it's to get back from a misunderstanding of the law, a misuse of the law, the losing of the context for the law. And this is what the prophets were constantly poking at. If you're ever to just read through the prophets, both major and minor as we call them, you will note that the prophets are constantly in one way or another poking at a misunderstanding, a misapplication, a, and almost always because of, a, of breaking the law apart from its context and from God's will for it. They're constantly poking at that. And so as salvation and redemption occur, what's in view here in these readings this morning is that instead of being far from God in rebellion, if you, if you look at near the end of our Isaiah reading this morning, there's something new that happens. You'll be called by a new name. You'll be a crown of splendor, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Some of you read that this morning and went, I've heard that before in a hymn. I didn't know that came from the scriptures. What is a royal diadem? It's very synonymous with this idea of a, of a crown and then this royal diadem. A diadem is simply a headpiece that signifies authority and dignity. And that, and that this is, you know, you're held in God's hand as somebody who has authority, in our case, we would say as ambassadors of the kingdom, and the dignity that comes with that. And so the notion then of being clothed with salvation, being robed with righteousness, is something like this. The clothing is normally thought to be suitable to the moment or the task, right? Like I'm dressed like this to be with you here this morning, um, but when I go home and get something to eat, I'm going to take down the Christmas lights. I won't be wearing this because it's not suitable for taking down Christmas lights, right? So the notion here is suitability. And so when it says that we're being clothed with salvation and righteousness as described in this passage, it's because it suits our role. It suits the purposes of God in humanity. Now, doesn't that sort of, if you let it, if you just sit with that for a moment, I think you'll notice that it begins to debunk what feels like the religiousness of salvation and the buzzkill of righteousness. Like, what if those things are actually what is most suitable to why you're alive? That being freed from all the things that bind us is what makes you suitable as an ambassador of the kingdom. What if being robed with righteousness isn't some sort of weird, religious, elitist, you know, sort of thing, judgmental thing? What if it isn't that? What if it's simply the freedom that creates within us the ability to live lives in, in coherence and alignment with God and what he's up to? Like, what if those are really freeing terms? So righteousness, in, uh, which is, uh, there's a whole Hebrew word group for it, and there's a whole New Testament word group for it. But in Hebrew, it's, it, it, it typically means just right standing and then the sort of normal, consequent, right behavior that would go along with being rightly in the covenant. So of course, covenant has two partners to it. On God's part, God's righteousness is the reason why we can expect him to save and deliver his people, that he's committed by his covenant love to do so. And Jesus models the human and essential two-way personal relationality that's implied in covenant, that it's not abstract law. Again, that's where Isaiah is poking at the ancient people of God. He's poking at their abstractions. 
And because abstractions always means depersonalizing. It means you're uncoupling. Covenant is essentially personal. It's a personal God and his people. And when you decouple that, you make religion abstract, and that almost always leads to human beings, let me say it again, becoming worse sorts of people in the pursuit of religion, ironically. But Jesus models the personal relationality. And thus, you'll notice in the scriptures that sometimes he's called the righteous one. And that just simply means the one designated by God as his true covenant partner, that he, he is the servant of the Lord, doing and saying only as he feels led by the Father. Now here I want to stop and just ask you to, to consider how that one little bit of imagination, I only do and say as I hear my Father doing and saying, I just want you to think about, if you had nothing else in all of the scriptures but that one little bit of imagination, how that would naturally take care of most of the things that otherwise seem or are in fact only religious moralisms or legalisms. So I shouldn't say F you because, well, you know, Paul said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So Christians aren't supposed to say F you or other naughty things. And see, then that gets decontextualized, it gets abstracted from what's really going on, and so we just live with this sort of religious notion that we're not supposed to say bad things. Christians aren't supposed to say bad things. But what if you kind of, telescoped out from that and said, no, the meaning of my life is I only do the things I see my father doing. And as his faithful covenant partner, I only say the things I hear him saying. That's my sense of myself. My sense of myself isn't that I don't cuss. Like, can you see how what a reduced, little shriveled sense of a self, how that's actually dehumanizing? Like, if you reduce religion to merely... I don't cuss, or to merely I don't drink, or I only drink wine, not the hard stuff. You know how Christians do that kind of stuff? Like we create these little weird moralisms. Or I say the S word, but never the F word, right? Because we all know from a Christmas story, that's the mother of all cuss words, right? <laughs> so we, that's the big one, right? And so we end up in these weird little personalized abstractions, and again, they get they get decoupled from this deeply personal God who wants you to live a life in covenantal relationship with him. And that means, yeah, I just, I, like my sense of myself is I'm just trying to live for the good of others, only doing what I see my father doing, only saying what I hear him saying. And that, that's like deep apprenticeship. That will challenge everything because that will get down to why do you want to tell that person to F off? See, to just not tell someone to F off leaves you the same sort of person. But the moment you begin to wonder, from where in my heart does such contempt come? Because to tell somebody in our culture to F off is the worst thing you can say. But as soon as you begin to wonder, where does that contempt come from? That is deeply contemptuous. Well, now you're on a whole different track. You're on a track away from abstracted, legalistic, moralistic religion, and you're on track to something that's more like giving yourself to a person as his apprentice or his disciple, learning to do what Jesus did. I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. So in our formation to Christlikeness, then, what we're shooting for is to bring our body and soul and spirit and mind and heart and emotions into alignment with Jesus which is then to be in alignment with God's aims in having a covenant people who partner with him in the establishment of worldwide justice and righteousness. 
Now, I just want to say one thing here. This is sort of a little aside, but I think important. Again, I know, just like you, I live in the real world, and I know that most people, if you just played word association and said righteousness, most people are going to think buzzkill. But you know who longs for righteousness? Those who are vulnerable and weak because sins committed against them. The woman being verbally or emotionally or physically or sexually abused by her spouse, she longs for righteousness. She longs to not be treated that way. The guy at work who's just used and misused and cast it out when he's not needed, downsized, right-sized, you know, whatever. That guy longs for righteousness on the earth. He longs for justice. Victims of injustice and discrimination, people made hopeless by systemic injustice that seems to them undeviating and perpetual. They long for righteousness. And these people need to hear and see that old wounds, this, this is now channeling Isaiah here. These people need to hear and see that old wounds can be healed. And that which seems impossible to change is being changed in the faithful people of God. And that the world that seems to coldly reject them is giving way to a new world in which the last word will be that the last is first and that humble, servant-oriented, not selfish, oppressive leadership is the moral arc and true north heading of the universe. I've bet my life on that. And I would invite you to do the same. I have bet my whole life that the moral arc of the universe is seen in the servant leadership of Jesus Christ, the world's one true creator Lord. And that's where this thing is going. And I just want to cooperate with it. Now, last thing. I remember one time there was a friend of mine way back when I was in the vineyard who was doing his PhD at Fuller. After a talk I had given, he came up to me and said, you know, Todd, you consistently misread Paul. You consistently see the word you. Uh, you talk about it like a typical, you know, sort of evangelical. You talk about it always in the singular, you know, first person plural. When he said the vast majority of the time in Paul, he's talking in second person plural terms. He's, so basically the guy was getting at, he was, he was my friend, he was getting at my tendency to read scripture over individualistically, which he was totally right about. And to miss the more communal yeah, wholeness that Paul is normally talking about. But in our reading this morning, it's if Paul gets out his little finger and he is pointing a little bit and you don't have second person plural, you have first person plural. You are no longer a slave to sin. You who are hearing this, you're a true child of God. You're an heir to all the promises of God. And you personally are invited to live into this new reality. Well, this is what Luke's getting at in our gospel reading this morning where he talks about Jesus coming, how he's both salvation and a bringer of righteousness. And that though this is, both of those things are sheer gift, it's also a dividing point. And that it provokes a moral crisis and calls for a personal decision. And this, of course, is what brings final judgment into play. So regarding the salvation and righteousness given us, what's the, what is the appropriate response for us who live between the times, right? And this is, this is where we are in the, you know, have just been in the church calendar. In Advent, we remind ourselves every year that we live between the first and the final coming of Jesus, so for those of us who are being clothed with righteousness, who are being robed with salvation, what does it mean to live between these times? What, what would it mean for us to say, okay, Paul, I hear you. I think it means something like this, to join the Jesus movement, 
following him for the sake of others, being his cooperative friends, seeking to live constant lives of creative goodness through the power of the Holy Spirit. That salvation and righteousness is meant to lead to us devoting our lives to doing those things we know to be good and beneficial for humanity. Again, if we, if we can rightly picture, not you know, reading between the lines, but if we can rightly picture, Paul not poking his finger in a negative way, but just like trying to just be precise, that there's an invitation there to surrender, to drop any rebellion, to respond to the initiation of God. And that what Paul is saying here is actually full of hope. And it could be that one or more of you need to hear this this morning, that no matter who you are, or no matter what you think you've done to disqualify yourself, or where you're from, that if you just take all that we've done in Advent and this morning and Christmas time, that you're invited to make this Advent Christmas story yours. From manger in Bethlehem to cross and resurrection to the new heavens and the new earth, you are being invited to make this story your story and to become an actor in it. That's the hopefulness, the goodness. You might even say the greatness, um, the generosity, the covenant love of God in salvation and righteousness is to pull you into that story and to redeem you from any place where you're being pulled away from it, to buy you back, that you might be humanity as God intended. Well, as we come to our quiet time this morning, thinking of the gifts of salvation and righteousness, thinking of those words in Isaiah that you'll be called by a new name, that you'll be given a new chance for life in the world, a new relation to God, a new identity. I want now, again, as you, I invite you to anyway to close your eyes or bow your head or do whatever it takes for you to be present here. And I want to read over you a little meditative sentence that is something that my friend Dallas Willard often used in moments appropriate to meditation and I want to invite you to take this on as your own. I am one in whom God dwells and delights, and I, along with others, live in the unshakable kingdom of God. I am one in whom God dwells and delights, and I, along with others, live in the unshakable kingdom of God.